Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. You will most likely recognize this. It's right after uh, the, uh, the, the narrative, the, the story about the, the burning bush, or perhaps better put, the unburning bush. Exodus 3, verses 7 to 10. And then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 9, all of chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. So again, our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, and our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. My brothers and sisters, undoubtedly, uh, as is so often the case, we are mere humans. We have many uh, many things in our minds, uh, many things in our lives which uh, serve to distract us. But you are about to hear the word of God. You're about to hear it read and hear it preached. This is God speaking to you. This is Him giving voice in the fullness of His authority as your Creator, as your King, as your Savior. As the one who loves you and the one whom you love. So please, brothers and sisters, give your full attention to God's Word. Exodus 3, verses 7 to 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, turning in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Samuel's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, And passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father uh, cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, And he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to give to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. 
And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up, to, up the hill to the city. They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called on Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop have yourself, stop here for yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that we have the the great blessing and privilege of of hearing it read in the assembly of your people. We thank you, O Lord, for it is the choicest food that we can be given. That it is sweeter than honey, that it is more precious to us than gold. We thank you, dear Lord, that it is life itself to us for those who believe. And so we are grateful that you have caused us to have faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray that you give us understanding. We pray that the the author of your word, the Holy Spirit, that he would guide us. 
that he would protect us from error, that he would cause us to understand that your glory that is revealed in this passage would be revealed unto us. Please, O Lord, may you be glorified now as we worship you through the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The people have spoken. That was the end result of 1 Samuel chapter 8, right? The people have spoken. They want a king. Samuel's not happy about it. But the Lord tells Samuel to go ahead and to give them the king that they so desperately desire. And even though though God knows that in asking them, in asking for a king, they, the people of Israel, are rejecting him, that is God, his motivation for giving them a king is, as he puts it in verse 16 of our passage, so that the king can save God's people from the hand of the Philistines. In spite of their rejection of him, still the Lord has great concern for the security, for the well-being, for the safety of his people. Now, as most of you already know, things don't work out so well for Saul as king. He's the kind of guy that we would probably choose if we switched over to a monarchy. He's tall, he's handsome, he's probably photogenic, telegenic. He would have probably made a great uh, Hollywood movie star. And what's more, he's willing to chase down a herd of donkeys like nobody's business, which is an underrated quality among people in authority. Would that more of our leaders would be willing to chase down a herd of donkeys who have gone missing. But ultimately, like so many civic leaders, he failed as Israel's king. Now we're going to get into that in a few weeks. But we all know it anyway. He failed. Today, however... We're learning about how Saul became king in the first place, but more importantly, more importantly than that, more importantly than the how of Saul becoming king, we're learning about the underlying reasons for why God was willing to fulfill his people's desire to have a king. As we work our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to keep this thought in your minds, to keep it before you. God's purposes in establishing a king was not fulfilled in the choice of Saul or of David but in the coming of King Jesus. I'll say that one more time. God's purposes in establishing a king was not fulfilled in the choice of Saul or David, but in the coming of King Jesus. The sermon conveniently is divided into three sections, as nearly always. Uh, The first section, the first point is about this time. The second point, their cry has come to me. The third point, make known the word of God. So again, the first point of the sermon about this time. The second point, their cry has come to me. And the third point, make known the word of God. So let's uh, delve into the first point of the sermon today about this time. Now the description of the events that take place in the first 14 verses of chapter 9, they have the appearance of ordinary things that just happen to take place in the lives of some mostly ordinary people. I can remember growing up on a dairy farm. It seemed like those Holstein cows that we had, and we didn't have that many, at most 50 or 60 at any given time, they were so prone to finding a way out of their pasture. They loved nothing more than to find the roadway and to stand in it and to cause cars to come to a screeching halt. 
There were times where we would be roused out of our beds in the middle of the night, my father, my brother, myself, my grandfather, and we would go and try to track down these silly cows that weren't so silly because they were our livelihood. And the well-being of our family was based upon having those cows in the pasture and especially in the milking parlor at the appropriate times. And so in so many ways, these verses, reading through them, they're verses about mundane things. But the reality is that everything in these verses is ordained by God. That's what verse 16 of our passage says. Now, Dale Davis, in his commentary, he describes it this way. It all seems so casual. Who would know that it was planned? It looks like we are dealing simply with what appears rather than with what is ordained. In verse 16, on the day before the events that took place in verses 1 to 14, the Lord reveals to Samuel that he is going to send Saul to him. And Saul is the man who would be king. And so we know now, in a sense, the end before we get to the beginning, right? Well, let's go back to the beginning of chapter 1. Verse 1 says, of chapter 9, verse 1 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia, the, uh, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. Now, verse 2 goes on to say that this man, Kish, has a son named Saul. And then we get this interesting description of this man. Perhaps a young man, but, but a man, Saul, he was handsome. In fact, no one in all of Israel was more handsome than Saul was. And he was literally head and shoulders above everyone else in height. Now certainly our society, it seems like it goes all the way back, doesn't it? Our society has a fixation on tall people. If you're tall, you must somehow be good at something. You're a great leader, you're a great actor, of course you're a great basketball player or volleyball player. But apparently, and the reason that we're given this description is Saul, uh, of Saul in 1 Samuel, apparently this is what the people of Israel regarded as being highly important and desirable characteristics for their first king. So this information about Saul's physical appearance, it's included for a reason, but probably not because God himself was impressed with Saul's looks and stature. Aside from the emphasis on looks, which is, I think it ought to be troubling for us. We ought to, that ought to give us a hint that maybe uh, people are looking in the wrong places. Aside from the emphasis on his looks, the fact that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin gives a sense of unease. If you are aware at all of the last three chapters of the book of Judges. We won't go through that book now, but if, if you desire to, to refresh your memory on what takes place there, read uh, chapters 19 to 21. In the book of Judges, perhaps not out loud in front of your children, perhaps so, leave it to your judgment, but maybe you want to read it first before you read it out loud, because the events that are described in those chapters are atrocious. And the sins that the people of the tribe of Benjamin committed were heinous. The description of Saul and his father, they set the stage for the troubling turn that Israel will take under Saul's leadership. And we have to be very careful here. We should not construe this as some mistake on God's part. God, after all, chose the man Saul. And then Saul blew it. We cannot think, we cannot allow ourselves to think that God got it wrong in his choice of Israel's first king. You see, 
God wasn't giving them the king that they needed in choosing Saul. He was giving them the king that they deserved. But in so doing, even in giving them this king who was going to prove himself to be as problematic and troublesome as the people themselves were, God was going to show them that their confidence should not be placed in princes, but in the living and true God. And so by giving them what they deserve... He's going to show them that what they want is not what they truly want. Now Saul is set upon upon a quest by his father to go in search of their missing donkeys. And Saul takes one of the young men with him, a servant. And verse 4 says that they pass through the hill country of Ephraim and the land of Shalashah and and through Sha'alim. But they could not find this stubborn herd of donkeys. I don't... I have a lot of experience with donkeys. At one point when I was in college, I believe my parents decided to get a donkey uh, to protect the, the cows. There were uh, coyotes had been reintroduced in North Carolina, and there were some who were starting to, to pick off some of the calves in, in, in the herd of cows that, that uh, my parents had on the family farm. And so they got a donkey because they'd heard that those were very effective in, in protecting the herd from, from coyotes and other predators. Unfortunately, my family's donkey, they named him Abraham, a promising name, a promising uh, start. He unfortunately decided that uh, one of the calves was a predator and kicked the calf in the head and killed the calf. And so my parents very swiftly got rid of Abraham. I think he might be buried somewhere on the family property uh, even now. But in that day, this herd of donkeys, it was a very important herd for uh, this man Kish and, uh, and Saul and their family. And so... Saul goes looking for uh, this herd. He goes through all of these different places all around. He travels at quite a circuit in looking for uh, these donkeys. And finally, in verse 5, we read that Saul came to the land of Zuf. Now, you may remember that this name, Zuf, it was uh, listed at the beginning of 1 Samuel in the first few verses of chapter 1. Uh, Zuf was an ancestor of Samuel's. And when Saul told his servant that he was ready to give up the search and head back home, the servant said that there was a man of God in the city who would prove to be Samuel himself. In their quest for the missing drove of donkeys, Samuel had seemingly randomly wound up in the hometown of the prophet Samuel, whom God had appointed to anoint the head of Israel's first king. That's the way this these first 14 verses are set up for us by the author of the book of 1 Samuel. The servant suggested that perhaps this man of God could, could tell Saul where the donkeys had gone. And a discussion ensues in verses 7 and 8 about what kind of remuneration they should give to this man of God. And verse 9 uh, is a parenthetical statement by the narrator informing his uh, readers of, of the history of the words prophet and seers. And then they head toward the city. And in verse 11, they meet some young women coming out of the city to draw water. Of course, Saul is handsome. He's attractive. He's tall. These young women, oh, they tell him readily exactly what he needs to hear. They ask the young women if the seer is in the city, and they tell them with great specificity exactly where they can find this seer, this man of God. If Saul and his servant hurry, they can catch... uh, 
Samuel. They don't know his name yet, but they can catch him before he goes up to uh, the high place before the, the feast so they can bless the sacrifice. And verse 14 says that they went up to the city and as they were entering, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, if the phrase hadn't already been corrupted, I would say that the way that Saul and Samuel met was a sort of harmonic convergence. As they were entering, Samuel was coming out toward them, almost as if he had been expecting them. And that brings us to verses 15 and 16. Now, the day before Saul came, Yahweh had had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be the prince over my people Israel. It wasn't just the timing of their entering the city and meeting up that God had carefully orchestrated. All of the events from the moment that Saul awoke that morning, all of it had been composed by God before the creation of the world. But we can't stop there. Because all of the days of Saul's life leading up to that day, and all of the days of his father and his grandfather all the way back to Adam, had been ordered in such a way that Saul and Samuel would converge at the entrance of the city just on that day, just at that time. You see, God was so watching over Israel that not a single hair from a single head of all the people of Israel could fall without God having willed it to happen. God has ordained all things to work together for the salvation of his people. And Saul meeting Samuel at the entrance to the city was one more harmonious orchestration in the symphony of God's plan of salvation for those who are his. It all works out. This takes us to the second point of the sermon, their cry has come to me. God explains why he has caused Samuel's meeting with Saul to happen in the second half of verse 16. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now we observed last week that Israel's desire for a king was at least in part a case of wanting the wrong thing for the right reason. They seem to be concerned that the corruption of Samuel's sons might lead to a widespread corruption throughout Israel and ultimately to God's judgment like what happened when Eli's Uh, Eli and his sons judged Israel. And so God's people cried out for the king, for a king. The troubling part about their cry for a king was that it meant that they were rejecting God's kingship over them. However, their rejection of God as their king in favor of one of their own men being king made, made ready the way for the coming of King Jesus. It not only set the stage, it paved the trail. What's more, they cried out to God out of their fear of the Philistines. They wanted a king like the other nations because they firmly believed that their king would deliver them from the Philistines. But they were unaware of the even greater problem that they faced. The Philistines weren't the worst of the troubles of the people of Israel. Nonetheless, they cried out to the Lord. They thought that the Philistines were the greatest problem they faced, but God would deal with that problem by sending out a shepherd boy to battle against their giant. To send out one who was, by all appearances, the weakest of them. To do the battle that they, the people, the mighty men of Israel, were afraid to do. 
they thought they needed an earthly king to deal with earthly problems, but God would send a spiritual king to deal with spiritual problems. And so they got a lot wrong. Their desires, their intents weren't all perfectly sanctified. But still, by the grace of God, they cried out to God. And he saw their concerns because he heard their cries for help. Brothers and sisters, we may pray with wrong motives for the wrong things, but still God hears his children's cries for help. And just because we're wrong about a particular aspect of the troubles we face doesn't mean we're completely wrong. And sometimes God provides us with the answers we think we need, those answers to the prayers that we think we ought to get, only to show us that we were asking for the wrong thing. Saul turned out not to be so great a king. And David, though far better, had major moral failures. Even the best of Israel's kings were poor substitutes for God as their king. God told Samuel that he was going to send to him a man from the land of Benjamin whom Samuel would anoint as prince of Israel, and that was what, exactly what happened. And verse 17 says that when Samuel saw, saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, Some of you, if you have the NIV, you may read uh, there, uh, He shall rule my people. Some other English translations have that, but but of the 46 times that this word that's translated in the ESV and in other uh, English translations, of the 46 times that it appears in the Hebrew Bible, it always means either to restrain, to retain, or hold, or to close up. It refers to a force applied to prevent another action. So what does God mean? This is the man who will restrain my people. I thought God was bringing uh, Saul in, this first king in, to defend God's people, to defeat the enemies of God's people. Why would God's people need to be restrained? Don't the Philistines need to be restrained? Well, here's the implication of what God is saying here. It isn't that the enemy without is the one that Israel ought to be afraid of, fearful of. The Philistines in this particular case, uh, other nations later on, the one that they most need to fear is the enemy within. Over and over again in the last several chapters of the book of Judges, you read the refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as you probably know, the book of Judges ends with that exact phrase. It's the last two sentences in the book. The greatest enemy the Israelites had was the enemy of their own sinfulness, which, if left unchecked, unrestrained, would lead to their utter and complete downfall. Which meant, specifically, they're coming under the righteous judgment and wrath of a holy God. And Saul, Saul, the first Israelite to be anointed king, being from the tribe of Benjamin was all the more fitting because it was the tribe of Benjamin that had to be restrained by the rest of Israel after they committed such heinous sins as Judges 19 shows. So the Philistines weren't the greatest threat to Israel's existence despite their fears. 
And whatever external threat is looming large in your lives and in my life isn't the greatest existential threat to us either. The greatest threat to us is not other people's sins against us, it's our own sin. And that state of sinfulness from which our sins come. As long as we can place the enemy to our souls, the enemy to our well-being, the enemy to our existence outside of ourselves, then we can get away with feeling pretty good about ourselves, can't we? Once we realize that the greatest enemy to our eternal existence is the sinfulness of that old man of the flesh, then things take on a completely new perspective. Well, that takes us to uh, point number three, make known the word of God. At this point, Saul still, still doesn't know that he is now in the presence of the man that he was seeking. Verse 18 says, Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel tells him that he is the seer. And then he gives instructions to Saul to go up before him to the high place. He tells Saul that he's going to dine with Samuel. And then uh, he will send him on his way in the morning. And then in verse 20, to show Saul that he was indeed the seer, Samuel gives Saul relief regarding the reason for his quest in the first place. He tells Saul that the donkeys that he was searching for have been found. Now, of course, Saul would have to believe that Samuel is telling him something that he actually knows. But here he's saying the donkeys that you've been looking for, they've been found. And then he adds in verse 20, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you? And for all your father's house? And Saul, understandably, is perplexed by this. What does Samuel mean? He tells Samuel in verse 21 that Benjamin is the least of all of the tribes of Israel. And Saul's particular clan is the least of all of the clans of this insignificant tribe, Benjamin. Saul's tribe had also caused a great deal of trouble to Israel, after all. Why would he, Saul, and his father's house receive all that is desirable in Israel? In verses 22 to 24, we read of Saul dining with Samuel. We read about how Saul has been given a portion that Samuel has asked the cook to set aside for Saul, the leg, the choicest of of the feast, showing again that Samuel was the prophet of the Lord, showing again to Saul that Samuel was indeed this seer who, when he told him that the donkeys were safe, he could trust him, he could believe it. Verse 25 says that after the meal, they went down from the high place back into the city to Samuel's house. Samuel had a bed spread out for Saul on the rooftop where it was common in that day for people to sleep uh, when it was hot. And the next morning, Samuel awakened Saul and they went out into the street. And verse 27 says that as they were going to the outskirts of the town, Samuel told Saul to have his servant go on before them because he wanted to speak privately with Saul. And the chapter ends in verse 27 with Samuel saying to Saul that I may make known to you the word of God. As we'll see next time, Lord willing, Samuel is going to take a flask of oil in chapter 10. He's going to anoint Saul as king. And so his making known to Saul the word of God is in the immediate context is his carrying out God's commands to anoint Saul as the king of Israel. That's that's the immediate making known to Saul, the word of God. But in the wider context of 1 Samuel, it means that Samuel as a prophet is going to reveal God's word to Saul and by extension to all of Israel. 
God would let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground, as it were. Samuel was going to be God's mouthpiece to Saul. And if Saul heeded his words, which were in fact God's words, all would go well with him. And Israel would prosper. And the threat, the external threats to the kingdom of Israel would be dealt with. And the, the internal threats would be dealt with. As it turns out, however, it won't be long before things begin to go sideways. Because Saul begins to reject God's word very quickly in his reign. In fact, Samuel tells Saul just that in chapter 15, verse 26. For you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. Just six chapters after our passage this morning, Saul has already rejected God's word. At the halfway point of the book of 1 Samuel. He doesn't even make it past halftime. Saul is out. God is going to call for the backup to come in and take over. The prophet's primary job was to make known the word of the Lord. And Israel's primary job, and especially the king's primary job, was to heed the word of the Lord. But this they would not do. The king... And indeed, all the people, they would not heed the word of the Lord. Well, that is our primary job as well. And we fail at it too. And the evidence that we fail at it is that every single week in the worship service that we conduct here in this church, we have a time of confession for and repentance for sin. And each and every day as you come before the Lord in private prayer, personal devotional time, Family worship. Most likely you confess sins to the Lord that you have committed against Him. We don't get it either. The man who would be Israel's first king turned out to be a colossal failure at keeping God's word. But we're not any better in all honesty. We like to think of ourselves as, as being far better than, oh, Saul, far better than him. What a terrible leader. What a failure as Israel's first king. When in reality, we would have done no better than Saul did. But the man who would be king, or better put, the God-man who would be king, he was going to keep God's word perfectly, his word perfectly. In everything, the God-man obeyed his father's word. He never failed. He never disobeyed. He never sinned. He was God's true king, his people's true king. He is God's people's true king. And he did this all for you and for me. His perfect obedience, yes, it was to give glory to his father's holy name, to the triune God's holy name. But he did it as well for you and for me. The active obedience of Christ, there is no hope without it. His perfect obedience to his Father's will in each and every particular way. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will have his perfect obedience to his Father's every word counted as your own perfect obedience. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are reckoned as righteous, meaning you are reckoned as one, you are counted as one, you are considered as as one by God the Father in heaven who has kept every single commandment that he has given for his people to keep. Jesus Christ 
is the king who saves his people from what we fear most. And brothers and sisters, what we fear most is not, believe it or not, some virus that is indeed dangerous to our physical health, potentially circulating around the world. It's not the person who might break into your house and rob you of your possessions or perhaps perhaps take your life. Though again, that is a serious threat against which we ought to protect ourselves. No, the greatest threat to us and the greatest thing that we ought to fear is eternal punishment for our sins. But if you are in Christ Jesus, meaning that you trust in him, you believe in him, you have no reason to fear. Not because you are so good and so great. Not because you are so well deserving of God's favor. So that he looks down upon you with his loving eye, thinking what a great servant he is or she is. No. You can rest assured of your salvation because God the Father looks at his perfect and precious son, Jesus Christ. Who has been obedient. Who has kept the word of God. And he's done it for you. And he's done it for me. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your perfect plan of salvation. Your plan, O Lord, which you came up with before you created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. We thank you, O Lord, that you considered every possibility and worked out beforehand that your Son, the eternal Son of God, would come and be made man. We thank you for the willingness of your Son to suffer humiliation, to suffer great pain, to suffer your forsakenness, in order that we might know you and love you and live eternally with you. We pray, dear Lord, that you would, by this knowledge, calm our fears. We pray that you would help us, O Lord, to trust in you and not in our own performance and not in our own good behavior, which indeed, O Lord, is not good at all. Help us to trust in you. Help us to love you. And help us, O Lord, out of gratitude to love our neighbor, to love our brother and sister in Christ, to love those who we find in need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.